Dr. Bauer. Hi, Scott. Now, you were uh, the dean of the arts and sciences at Virginia Tech, correct? Yes, I started there in 1978. And uh, you retired in 1999, correct? That's true, yes. And were you part of the advisory board for the International Society of Cryptozoology, too? Uh, no, I was a member of the society. I was a member, too. I was friends with J. Richard Greenwell, who I'm sure you knew. Um, yes, I did. And you started after the demise of the International Society of Cryptozoology. You started your own journal, the Journal of Scientific Exploration. Well, actually... The Journal of Scientific Exploration had been going since 19, uh, early 1980s, and um, I was one of the founding members of the Society for Scientific Exploration, which had been originally set up by a group of um, really well-placed, quite eminent astronomers and astrophysicists who thought that uh, the reports of UFOs, unidentified flying objects, they thought reports of those things ought to be studied more scientifically than they had been. And um, they were joined also by... Uh, uh, Robert John, who was Dean of uh, Engineering at Princeton and uh, did very fundamental work in parapsychology. Uh -huh. And uh, Marcello Truzzi, who was a sociologist who had long been interested in uh, fringe scientific subjects. And... Uh, it happened that I had just uh, written a manuscript about the Velikovsky affair, uh -huh. and uh, uh, Marcello Truzzi was chosen as a reader of the manuscript, and he told me about the Society for Scientific Exploration just being formed, and so I had the opportunity uh, to join it. And so cryptozoology was, uh, uh, you know, it, it was represented in that Society for Scientific Exploration, even though there were not many people other than myself who uh, uh, were really actively 
interested in it. Yeah, you see, I, I was under the mistaken impression that 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 society had started after the ISC. And see, I was mistaken about that. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry about that. Um, well, these these societies and people working on non-mainstream subjects are not at all well known, and that's an enormous problem. And there's also a problem getting funding to study these subjects as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Which ex- yeah, which explains why a lot of these societies who do good work and are well-meaning like the ISC go belly up from financial problems. That's right. That's what killed the International Society of Cryptozoology with money problems. Yes. I'm sure many people have read your book, The Enigma of Loch Ness, and actually it's one of my favorite Nessie books on the subject. And then I realize it's more it's more than just about the Loch Ness Monster. It's about the external controversy surrounding the claims of the Loch Ness Monster. Exactly. And uh, in fact, the Loch, my interest in the Loch Ness Monster actually uh, uh, led to a career change uh, for me. Uh, I had started as a chemist, uh, an analytical chemist, electrochemist, uh, but uh, around 1960, I, uh, I came across Tim Dinsdale's book and... Uh, I couldn't get myself to decide uh, whether to believe him or not. And so I started to follow uh, as I could, as much as I could, what was happening at Loch Ness. I joined the, uh, uh, what was the name of the organization? The LNI? Yeah, the LNI. And they had a newsletter. Uh, I was in Australia at the time, and uh, so I was getting their newsletter. And uh, in 1972, uh, I took a sabbatical leave, uh, and uh, we were in Southampton where uh, uh, there was a great department of chemistry and electrochemistry. And, of course, during uh, a spring vacation, uh, I took a trip up to Loch Ness. And lo and behold, Tim Dinsdale happened to be there at that time. And I met him, and um, I arranged for him to... uh, I later uh, arranged for him to come and uh, give lectures in, uh, at that time I was at the University of Kentucky in Lexington, Kentucky. And so um, I think it was in 1975 maybe that Tim came over and uh, gave talks at uh, a few universities there. And then when I came to Virginia Tech in 1978, uh, 
I again arranged uh, a visit from Tim and he gave some talks around uh, Virginia universities. And those talks gave me the opportunity to see Tim's film in a 35 millimeter version. And by golly, it is, it's impressive on a big screen as a, in that version. Well, I'm sure, I believe his wife owns the master copy, correct, Wendy? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I have seen the uh, copy that, that his son has put on the internet. That's a really good copy of it. It is, yes. Probably and, the best one out there that I'm aware of. Well, the uh, the Dinsdales have been careful uh, to make sure that they don't the film doesn't get into unscrupulous hands. And uh, Tim gave me a, a 16 millimeter copy. Uh, and um, some people have occasionally asked me to lend that to them, and I've simply refused because uh, amongst the people who want that, are uh, Adrian Schein, who is a determined debunker of uh, of Loch Ness monsters. Yes, he believes that the film shows a boat. Yeah, which is utter nonsense. Well, I don't agree with it either. Uh, I've I've looked at both sides of the arguments, and the interesting thing to me is that. You see illustrations where they have drawn what they represent to be humps as supposed to be two people sitting in the boat. Yeah. There's different parts of the video that are of the monster segment, where in one segment you see one hump, and then in the other segment they've got marked two humps. So what happened? Did somebody jump out of the boat during the filming? (laughs) You know, I mean, it's... (laughs) A lot of questions there, you know? Well, the um, there's also a, a book, I forget by whom, uh, that has uh, uh, photographs of a boat that is supposed to look like Tim's hump, and it doesn't look anything like it. Might be Ronald Ben's book, possibly? Um, no... It was, um, uh, let's see who it is. I've got all these uh, things here. Robert Binns, B-I-N-N-S. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got, I've got both of his books. The one from 1983 and the one from a couple of years ago, too. Yeah. Which is essentially basically a rehash of the 1983 book. I haven't seen the later one. Well, you're not missing much. It's basically the 1983 book just augmented. Right. Yeah. And uh, there used to be a uh, a cryptozoology internet discussion group. And um, 
I posted on there uh, a criticism of uh, Adrian Shine's uh, claims about a boat. Yeah, well, I've <clears throat> I've read several places that the copy that they're using for their analysis is like a second or third generation copy of the original film that may have artifacts from the reproduction of so many generations. Well, well uh, it's absurd if you think about it. What Adrian Schein did was uh, he photographed from a TV screen from a program that showed the Dinsdale film. He photographed that from a screen. Now, yeah. to start with, you then don't know what the uh, rate was at which the original film was uh, taken. But on top of that, you get all sorts of reflections and artifacts and so on. Yeah. And, uh, and so Shine claims digital computerized enhancement, but what he's enhancing is rubbish. The uh, image stacking procedure. Yeah, I've seen that. Now, uh, I told you, Tim gave me a, a 16 millimeter copy of his film, and uh, I had the uh, computer science department at the University of uh, you, at my university here, uh, scan it and look for boat shapes, and they didn't find anything at all. They they expanded the scan down to the grain size of the film, mm -hmm. and there is simply nothing to be seen above the water surface on that. Uh, sequence of the film where it's moving from right to left uh, along the opposite shore. And there supposedly you can see splashes like movement of flippers going up and down in parts of it, correct? Well, there are periodic splashes towards the front. And uh, I'm not sure that it's possible to interpret those exactly. Uh, Tim thought they looked like uh, paddle splashes, and they do. But on the other hand, it may be that uh, there were uh, waves coming uh, at an angle towards the wake that was being thrown up and uh, and uh, the periodic splashes might be from that now you consider tim densdale's film and the underwater rhines photographs to be the best evidence there is for nasa correct absolutely and you knew bob rhines as well right i did and um you know, for something like 20 years, my wife and I spent a few weeks each summer at Loch Ness uh, in a chalet uh, overlooking Urquhart Bay. 
And um, so uh, I was able to meet Barbara Hines when he was there. And um, and I met a lot of other people there uh, too, of course. Including you know a, including Adrian Shine. Did you know Martin Klein? I never met Martin Klein. What about Charlie Wyckoff? Or Wyckoff. Ah, because they worked very closely with Bob Rhines too. Yeah, but uh, I have a uh, a copy of the letter that Charlie Wyckoff wrote to Discover Magazine. In which, she, yeah, in which yeah, in which she pointed out that that there had been absolutely no retouching of uh, of the flipper. And yeah, uh, my understanding is that the original prints were transparencies, and that any contrast adjustments were done to transparencies. So if you turn the contrast up and down. You're going to take away parts of the original image and change it subjectively by just changing the contrast on a transparency. Well, so, you know, anything like that could have happened. Uh, the, uh, I was in touch years and years ago with Alan Gillespie, who yes, was the, the remote sensing guy who did the computer enhancements, yes. Exactly, he did it at, uh, and uh, he said uh, in a letter that he didn't know what all of the fuss was about because the flipper shape was clearly visible on the original film yep. before there was any enhancement. Yes, I agree with that statement. Uh, and and in, something in very interesting you might not be aware of is that about five years ago, <clears throat> they discovered that some plesiosaurs had flippers that were exactly the same shape. They had a ridge going down the middle, and the reason why is that the fleshy part of the flipper is much wider than, than the triangular bones that you see. Uh -huh. Plesiosaur flipper, about half of the flipper, the full flipper, is just a trailing edge of skin. So it would have that ridge going down the middle where the bones end, and the back end of the flipper is nothing but flesh. Uh -huh. So it would look exactly like what you see in the, in the Rhine's images. Yeah. The, uh, the difficulty for me with plesiosaurs is that uh, it seems to be a consensus that they were surface uh, living creatures and surface hunting creatures. And we don't, and Nessie, Nessies don't appear at the surface very much at all. No. We know that turtles, some kind of turtles, can get oxygen through a sack in their cloaca, which is their, basically their butt, it's lined with a sack with blood vessels in it, and they can suck water into that and draw oxygen directly from the water into the bloodstream through the 
blood vessels that line that sack, and it works almost like a fish scale. Right. There are some, there are some turtles in Australia that get 70% of their oxygen directly from the water that way. Right. I don't, don't know. know. We don't know what Plessy's source could do that, but they're built so similarly that might be possible as well. Yeah, uh, did I not uh, send you a copy? I wrote a, an article in the Journal of Scientific Exploration suggesting that uh, uh, Nessies might be relatives of turtles. Yes, you did. Okay. In fact, you mentioned me in the acknowledgments. Okay. About which I, I thank you for that. Sure. Um, one 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 thing that I've always been fascinated with, and maybe you can fill me in on this, is that in late 1959, early 1960, you had no less than two biologists associated with the London Museum of Natural History arguing that the Loch Ness monsters might be plesiosaurs. Then one of them gets fired. And the other one does it on an abrupt about face. Of course, I'm talking about Dennis Tucker and Maurice Burton. These two yeah. events happen very close in time together. And I'm wondering if there's a connection. In other words, did, did Tucker get fired and then Maurice Burton change his tune because he was worried about his reputation? I've tried to write, uh, to read as much as I could about Dennis Tucker and uh, apparently he was uh, uh, a rather bristly person to get along with, so he had not made many friends, and so it was uh, relatively easy for the administration to find excuses for uh, firing him. But I think that, that uh, they actually said that the main reason was that his fascination or his proclamation that Nessies were real was sort of uh, hurting the reputation of the uh, of the museum. Uh, Morris Burton, I think, uh, had taken uh, the possibility quite seriously. And uh, he, in fact, made a trip up to Loch Ness and uh, wrote an article in, uh, I think, the Illustrated London News, in which uh, he was not dead set against it at all. But uh, then later, as you say, he, uh, he became a debunker, and it may well have been in order to... Uh, to not get on the wrong side of his bosses at the museum. Well, yeah, I'm wondering if maybe perhaps Burton might have talked to somebody and led to Tucker getting fired. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And incidentally, it was Morris Burton's daughter who lent Tim Dinsdale that 16-millimeter camera. Yeah, I think her name was Jade. She was a naturalist, too, I believe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So, tell us about your uh, book on Velikovsky and how that relates to the whole Nessie controversy. Well, in um, I told you in, in 1972, I had met Tim Dinsdale and um, also in the early 1970s, there was a bit of a recession, economic recession here in the United States. And uh, uh, that included academic pursuits. Uh, we were losing graduate students in chemistry and so on. And uh, the University of Kentucky uh, was urging the faculty uh, to get research grants for interdisciplinary projects. So um, just at that time, of course, I had met Tim and he had shown me the, uh, the Rhine's flipper photograph. So I thought it was just a matter of time until everybody accepted the reality of Nessie's. So I put together a, uh, a team of a philosopher, a sociologist, a journalist, a historian, a biologist, and we put in a, a, uh, uh, a proposal to study how the attitudes of the scientific community changed as the evidence came in about Nessie's. Well, it turns out that uh, uh, our proposal was not accepted, it was turned down, but uh, one of the reviewers' uh, comments said, if they want to study the interaction between uh, popular claims and the scientific community, why don't they look into the Velikovsky affair, uh, which I had never heard of. And I decided, well, <laughs> I had better find out what the Velikovsky affair was all about. And uh, it was uh, a psychiatrist, Emmanuel Velikovsky, who had published a book uh, a popular book called Worlds in Collision through a uh, popular publisher, Macmillan Publishers, uh, in which he made claims that uh, uh, he could interpret uh, things in the Bible and uh, legends and myths from all over the place uh, to say that at one stage... Jupiter, the planet Jupiter, had emitted a comet which had made various voyages through the solar system and had come close to Earth, had produced all sorts of catastrophes like uh, the parting of the Red Seas for the Israelites to go through uh, and that it had eventually settled into an orbit and was now the planet Venus. Well, it was a very popular book. It was a bestseller, but uh, essentially the whole scientific community uh, rose up uh, in criticism of, of uh, 
that scenario. And what fascinated me when reading about this was how incompetent the scientific critiques were. And you had things like uh, a prominent physicist saying, Emmanuel Velikovsky's book is rubbish and I haven't even read it. You know, which is not not a particularly good way to get people no, to take you seriously. It's not a scientific rebuttal. Yeah. So uh, around that time, I decided that I really wanted to switch my career from doing uh, academic chemistry uh, to sort of uh, history, sociology, philosophy of science. And uh, and I start. I was going to start off by writing a book about Velikovsky and the Loch Ness monster. Uh, one fringe claim, the Velikovsky one, that was wrong, and a fringe claim that was right about the Loch Ness monster, and it became uh, much too much for one book. <laughs> Well, you so, split it into two books. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the, the thing that initially impressed me about the Nessie book is how you explained how the biology community and the marine biologists and all these other, the paleontologists could just basically ignore this problem and act like it didn't exist. Yes. Which and is unfortunate, you know? It's unfortunate, but it is a very important fact of life. And uh, uh, I think the underlying reason for that is that uh, science is a way of making a living. And uh, so if you're a scientist, you're not like the old days uh, when people studied what they were interested in. Nowadays, scientists have to get jobs and they're working for people and they need grants. Yeah. And, and uh, so they can only work on things that offer a reasonable opportunity of getting uh, publishable results in a reasonable length of time. Yeah. One person I can point to that is currently struggling with this very dilemma, and I'm sure you've heard the name Jeff Meldrum. Oh, yeah, of, of course, yes. He's gotten so much flack because of his Bigfoot research, you know? Right, and... and um... Jeff has been, uh, I don't know whether he's been a member of the Society for Scientific Exploration, but a few years ago he was given uh, an award by the Society. Uh, I actually helped establish the Tim Dinsdale Award. Oh, I've heard is, of it, yes. Yeah, and it's given by the uh, Society for Scientific Exploration, uh, for people who have uh, done outstanding work on 
subjects that the mainstream ignores. I read your paper on Occam's razor and Occam's lobotomy. Would you like <laughs> to explain that to the audience in layman's terms so they can understand it? I understood it. But. Well, uh, Occam's razor says that uh, you should first go for the most obvious explanation. And, uh, uh, of course, Occam's lobotomy is that you refuse to look at any other explanation. Uh, I've, uh, I've written an article much more recently uh, about that sort of thing, that, uh, you know, we're... Um, uh, the popular culture has generally heard of Galileo and the uh, uh, the way in which this individual scientist uh, went against what uh, the mainstream believed and he turned out to be right. But the fact of the matter is that in most cases on most subjects, the mainstream is the place that uh, it's most most rational, I guess, uh, to go with the mainstream, unless there are very good cases, reasons not to. Uh, so there's a saying that uh, hard cases make bad laws. In other words, if if you believe everybody who claims to be a Galileo, uh, that is not a very good procedure to follow. It's it's not good to to establish a law that says Galileos are always right. But the opposite of that, which people don't usually mention, is that good laws ignore the hard cases. And uh, Nessie happens to be one of those hard cases. Mm -hmm. The difficulty is that the conventional wisdom doesn't know about the hard cases and they almost automatically ignore people who propose those hard cases. Yeah. So uh, what, um, <clears throat> what my change of career actually led to was to... Uh, uh, I was always looking for scientific controversies and uh, trying to analyze uh, how the mainstream reacted to unorthodox opinions. And uh, it turns out <laughs> that it's quite the common thing in scientific research that minority views and unorthodox opinions are given very short shrift indeed. And people who continue to press 
their uh, minority views uh, can have their careers severely damaged or even, you know, completely ruined. Yeah. Well, look at look at the current status of people's opinion on the science of parapsychology. Some people accept it. Some people completely reject it. Right. Yeah. So. But um, what this has led me to, uh, unfortunately, is that I've become uh, a proponent of two points of view that are very severely criticized by the conventional wisdom. And one of them is that HIV causes AIDS. And the other one is that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere causes climate change. And the thing is that if you look into the actual evidence, the data, the facts, neither of those things happens to be true. And it's quite an extraordinary thing and very frustrating for me that the whole world essentially believes those two things implicitly and calls them settled science when it's not at all really the case. Well, I, I know for a fact that people who disagree with your HIV stance use your uh, Nessie research. They, they, they uh, downplay or they, they, they make fun of your Nessie research because they disagree with you over the HIV thing. Yeah, it's guilt by association. Yeah, I mean, you know. And I, uh, oh, go ahead. It's really rather disappointing to me. Uh, you know, I, I fell in love with science back in high school, and um, I find it really discouraging uh, that... Within, within the scientific community, you find people who are so determined that nobody disagree with them that they will go to tremendous lengths to blacken people's character and smear them just because they disagree now, with them on something. You see some of that in the skeptical community. You do, too. That's true. Yeah. But I have, I have friends in the skeptical community as well. So, you know, I mean, all, all the different factions have problems. You know, nobody's perfect. No, we're all human. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, but um, I think before the formation of, uh, of PSYCOP or any of that, you and a lot of those folks were together under one umbrella during under the Zetetic Scholar Journal, correct? And they were under what umbrella? The journal called Zetetic Scholar. 
back in the late 70s, early 80s. Oh, yes. Well, actually, Zetetic Scholar was um, edited by Marcello Truzzi, yeah. who, who was a quite open-minded fellow. And he was soon fired as editor because Psychop didn't approve of his open-mindedness. Yep. I've, I've read about this. Um, so, what did you think about the carcass that Ryan supposedly found in 2001? Photographed with the ROV. Well, he was never able to bring it to the surface is the trouble. Yeah. I mean, it, it looked quite plausible, yeah. but it, 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 had, it needed to be brought to the surface. Definitely, yeah. They went back in 2008 on his last expedition trying to relocate it and apparently couldn't find it again. Yeah. What is the story with the... Um, the bacterial mats that he found, the yellow bacterial mats, those were found in 2001 as well. I'm not familiar with that. Well, they were like a, a blobby-looking yellow life form that were found on the bottom of Loch Ness. Hmm. And they were made with some kind of uh, rod structures. Hmm. Microbial mats. Hmm. He talks about them on a, a certain um, Loch Ness television special. Hmm. I can't remember the exact hmm. one, but um, I'm sure you know about the uh, the marine fossils that he found. Oh yeah, that, that, all that stuff. That's very important evidence right there. That well, Loch Ness that, was once open to the sea. Right, that that was a very very vital part of of uh, of uh, information. Uh, I mean, it was Constance White who had first pointed out that if Nessies are real, they must have come uh, into what is now Loch Ness at a time after the Ice Age when uh, yeah. Loch Ness was for a a time part of the ocean. And so uh, this was very important proof yeah. that it had indeed been part of the ocean. Well, you probably know I do most of my work at Lake Champlain. Yeah. And they've actually found complete whale skeletons and skeletons of seals from when it was marine, from around the same time period. And, and and there is still now a uh, a decent connection, isn't there? Yes, through the St. Lawrence River. Yeah. And then there's a river that runs off the St. Lawrence called the Richley River that runs directly into the top of Lake Champlain. Uh-huh. Yeah, so technically it's still connected. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know Richard Smith, by the way? Yes, I do. Okay. I've been friends with him for at least 20 years. Okay. And as well. 
I I haven't been in touch with him for a long time, but but I was for a while, and and uh, I remember that he was really interested in Champ. Yep, he's he's made several expeditions up there. In fact, I, I'm going there very soon in the next couple of months for uh-huh. my yearly expedition. Um. So, what was I thinking of? Oh, you know, Richard was was heavily involved in the whole surgeon's photo controversy. Oh, I must have known it, but I've forgotten. (laughs) Yeah. He was over there trying to help Ryan's prove that it was not a model. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, the the, the Nova Special, they took and built a four-foot-high model of a four-foot-high neck and were able to reproduce a convincing version of the surgeon's photo with a four-foot-high neck. Uh-huh. Yeah. So he's, like me, he's one of the people that doesn't believe the, the toy submarine story. No, I, I don't either. <laughs> and... Uh... <clears throat> Who's there's a there's a British uh, cryptozoologist who I think has debunked that. Uh, Carl Sugar. Uh, yes, exactly. Yep, yeah, I know him too. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah, he, he he's written some excellent books. Yeah, you know, there's a, another interesting photograph is the uh, Hugh Gray picture. Yes. One interesting thing about the Hugh Gray picture is you see what appears to be the attachment points for limbs running along the side of whatever this object is. Yeah, that's what I see in it, and yeah, and I I I accept the that conventional interpretation of it, and and I'm totally uh, nonplussed by the claims of people like Tony Harmsworth that it shows somehow a dog swimming with, with a, a stick in its mouth. A yeah. stick in its mouth. I mean Well the latest the latest attempt to debunk it has been that it's a photograph of a swan. Oh yeah. <laughs> and you don't see I mean where's the wings? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know what made you move over to the turtle idea from the plesiosaur idea? It's the difficulty of uh, uh, the lack of surface sightings. You know, there are far, far too few surface sightings, really. Yeah. And um, on the other hand, uh, there's quite a, a... a bit of circumstantial evidence about uh, them spending a lot of time down deep. Uh, Going back to the, uh, uh, I think it was in the 1960s, there were some engineers from Birmingham University who uh, were trying out a, a new sonar equipment and they picked up uh, these things that uh, 
came from the bottom of the of uh, Loch Ness and travelled up towards the surface and then back down to the bottom. This was in 1968, I believe. D. D. Gordon Tucker was one of the. Yeah, engines. right. Yes. yes. And I believe that was published in Nature. I don't know where it was in a mainstream journal somewhere. I it was Nature. Yeah. So. So I mean, that's that's the main problem that I can see, is uh, uh, that. And the mainstream belief about plesiosaurs is that they were surface dwelling, and that uh, uh, I think the the bulk of the evidence about Nessies is that they spend most of their time uh, away from the surface and maybe very deep indeed. Yeah. Well. Most of the sonar evidence would tend to suggest that they spend most of their time in deep water. Because uh, you've got, you know, the Operation Deep Scan. Yeah. Pointed in that direction as well, you know. Right. And uh, some of Adrian Shine's own uh, sonar hits, he can't explain himself. I know. (laughs) Yes, they... They had published uh, their some of their sonar results that included, uh, you know, likely looking objects that moved up from the surface and down again, uh-huh. up from the bottom and down again. Well, you were actually there when that was going on at Loch Ness, weren't you? I was. I, I was um, an observer that... Um, uh, Lawrence, the um, the sonar company, uh, offered me a, a fare to go over there and be an observer, which I really appreciated. And uh, uh, a very important part of my observations was that. Uh, uh, Operation Deep Scan did not scan the whole loch. They scanned the bottom two-thirds of it, the southern two-thirds of it. Mm-hmm. What was your opinion on the claim that the tree stump pulled up was the object from the gargoyle head photograph? Well, there was a, um, uh, a news conference that uh, Shine had arranged um for all of the press people and others who were covering the thing at which <coughs> at which he began by by talking about this uh, remarkable bit of evidence that uh, they had discovered and that uh, they would be showing at this uh, press conference and uh, how they had found this thing on the bottom that was clearly what uh, what Rhines had photographed. And, uh, and then eventually, after all this hype and hoopla, uh, he puts these uh, uh, photographs on the screen, and 
people laughed. I mean, <laughs> it it was just, it, it it was absolutely absurd to suggest that those two things were clearly the same. And it would have been a, a, a time interval of twelve years between the Rhine's photograph and the discovery of this tree stump, too, which is another questionable aspect. Right. I I remember several of the journalists being extremely uh, unimpressed and also uh, pretty critical of Shine. Shine is an interesting character, of course. He's... I mean, he's clearly very intelligent. Yeah, he um, was clearly also very courageous in in uh, what he was doing originally at Loch Mora. Yep, uh, but uh, <clears throat> he's just become a total debunker, <clears throat> and uh, things like his. Uh, attempt to find a a boat in the Dinsdale film, I mean, is is really... Well, I know there was a time he would give interviews and he would always say, the media monster doesn't exist. What is he talking about? The media monster is the image of this thing that looks like a plesiosaur, which is what everybody, for the most part, seems to be describing what they see. Right. So what is he trying to say that the monster doesn't exist? I mean, what is the media monster? The only thing I can figure out he's talking about is the classic image of the Loch Ness monster. Yeah. Yeah. So I will say this: I think he's done some remarkable, meaningful work about finding out about the ecology of Loch Ness. Definitely, definitely, he's done some excellent work there. Yeah. So we have to give him that, you know. But uh, yeah. Alistair Boyd himself, who was the primary guy that, that says that the surgeon's photo was a fake, had a sighting of his own. Of yeah. Ness. And even he says that they need to be, you know, that all the scientific work they're doing it's fine, but they need to be looking at the sightings of the Loch Ness Monster. What's behind that? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what happened to Alistair Boyd. He just kind of disappeared, but that's unfortunate. I disagree with him on the surgeon's photo, but, you know, he was an advocate for Nessie, so. Yeah, I don't know what went on there. It's, uh, uh, <clears throat> I mean, that... Uh, that book was written by Boyd and Martin, and Martin uh, is a fellow who had worked closely with Adrian Shine. Yeah. I think he's located in London now, doing something, or he was. Yeah. I don't think he's at Loch Ness anymore. Um, there is a marine biologist that's working with Adrian Shine. I'm trying to remember his name. He's written several papers about predicting how many unknown marine animals might still be out there to be discovered. Uh, oh, yeah, Charles Paxton. Paxton, there you go. Yep. They've written yeah, he, articles together. Yeah, he he's an academic uh, 
I think at the University of St. Andrews. Yeah. Well, and he's a good statistician, but uh, uh, statistics doesn't prove things one way or the other. Well, he was supposed to be publishing a big paper about Nessie, but I don't think it's been published yet. Break it down all the different sightings into different categories, but I haven't uh-huh. seen it yet, so I don't know. No, I well, haven't either. I guess we can pick up the rest of this discussion sometime later in the week. Yes, be glad to, Scott. All right. Well, we've got we've got roughly an hour now, so if we get together and do one more hour, we should be able to cover everything. Very good. Enjoy talking to you. Thank you. Yeah. Talk to you later. Yes, I'll be in touch. Good. Yep. Bye. Bye. Okay, so we're back with the second half of our interview with Professor Henry H. Bauer. Hello, Dr. Bauer. Hi, Scott. Nice to talk to you. Yes. Um... So, you know, I'm sure as as well as as me, you've been curious about why there were no underwater photographs from the AAS and Bob Rines in 1973 and 1974. I actually found an answer. Uh Uh-huh. Ike Blonder, the late Ike Blonder, had a website and he's got a paragraph that tells why that that happened. I'll just read this couple of sentences real quick with your permission. It says, the summer of 1973 was a cold one, so cold that a new automatic underwater station in Urquhart Bay fell to work due to the ice-cold water, which had the lubricant in the cameras to solidify. So in other words, in 1973, the water was so cold it caused the cameras to freeze up. Well. Yeah. And then, now here's what happened in 1974. It says, next year, the Academy team tried again, this time with another development, the computerized sonar-triggered link to a strobe flash camera. But on development, the computerized, let's see, the lowering, but on lowering the whole contraption to the bottom, one of the divers lost his nerve and abandoned the task in midwater. The station fell over and damaged the camera, thus wrecking the whole experiment. Oh, but that's boy. what happened in 1974. But I thought you would be interested in hearing that. Yes, I hadn't known those things. Well, you know, getting back to that, one unanswered mystery is why... After 1975, did they not get any more underwater photographic results? Do you have any insight on that? No, I, I'm afraid I don't. It, um, one possibility is that uh, uh, Rhines had changed in his... Uh, in the focus of what he wanted to do and and was already uh, uh, interested in trying to recover remains from the bottom of the loch yeah well, i don't i don't recall 
what year it was that uh, they got the uh, the freshwater uh, or the seawater uh, clam? Two thousand and one. Oh, much later. Yeah, so it was the same year, and this a lot of this was on the sixty minutes two segment. If you remember that, they got a video of some kind of thing swimming at the surface. They found the clamshells, and they also found the uh, what looked like a carcass underwater. And also discovered, uh, we spoke about this last time, this kind of uh, microbial bat mat life form that was a yellow colored and comp comprised of rods that were formed together in some kind of colony. Yeah. Yeah. So 2001 apparently was a very good year for them. And a lot of this stuff still needs to be followed up. Um, have you ever had any contact with one of the guys that was working with him named Elijah Ercolino? I know I, I had uh, exchanged emails with him long, long ago. Yeah, I've been meaning to reach out to him. I have reached out to wife to yeah. get really back involved in the whole Loch Ness thing, but he did tell me that he had one sighting and did believe that there was something in there. So, obviously, he's he's pro-Nassie. Um, yeah. So, tell me about who are some of the characters, the, the famous characters associated with Loch Ness that you may have had contact with. I know you had contact with Frank Searle. What about Ted Holliday? I never met Holiday. Um, I was interested in uh, in what he had written, uh, and uh, I can't say that I thought of him as terribly reliable. I think he was in on one of the uh, exorcism yeah, uh, he was. things. He was in the boat. Yeah. With um, the Reverend Ormond. Yeah. Yeah, he had a lot of paranormal beliefs regarding Nassi and connected it with UFOs and possibly other dimensions and all kinds of right. things. Yeah. Well, I mean, the um, uh, Tim Dinsdale, of course, was the person who um, uh, most... Um, responsible for getting me interested in it but in terms of other characters uh, I had a very high regard for Constance White I think her book was uh, quite remarkable and um, I think I think it was uh, an article that she had written in a magazine that first uh, got Tim interested. And wasn't she a nurse at one point? Was it what? Wasn't she a nurse at one point? I didn't catch that, Scott. I'm sorry. 
I said I believe she was a nurse. Oh, one. no, she was an MD. An MD, okay, there you go. Yeah, she and I think she she graduated from uh, King's College and I believe she had written an article in yeah. the King's College magazine. That's what I was leading to that the original article was in some kind of a medical journal. Right. And and um uh well she got married to someone up in Inverness. And so she lived there for a long time. Well, her and, husband, her husband was the manager of the Caledonian Canal. Right. Yeah. So I mean, I, uh, as she says in her book, she got to meet so many people there who had had individual sightings mm. that uh, she found it completely convincing. Yeah. And I believe that, uh, I think in her book, she even mentions a hundred uh, people. But anyway, she also did important research. And, oh, absolutely. Yes. Her, uh, book, her book was seminal in reviving interest in the Loch Ness Monster after Rupert Gould. You're right. And and uh, her discovery of the second surgeon photograph is terribly important. Yes. And uh, that's the significance of the second uh, photograph is really ignored by almost everybody. Yes, I agree with you. Did you ever meet Nick Witchell? Uh, I did very briefly. Uh, I was um, over there for Operation Deep Scan, uh, and Nick Witchell was uh, was there also, of course. Yeah. So, tell us about that press conference that Shine had with Operation Deep Scan. Well. Shine had made a uh, a uh, big, big fuss about how there was going to be this press conference and that there would be surprising uh, results and information uh, given. And um, the room was uh, overly full of people. It was... Uh, at the Klansman Hotel that the thing was held. And um, a long introduction, and then finally the, uh, the big surprise on a screen showing one of the underwater photographs, the, uh, the gargoyle head, and then a photograph of uh, what Shine said was a tree stump that they had uh, brought up from the bottom of Urquhart Bay. And uh, uh, he claimed that the gargoyle head looked just like that. And it looked li nothing like it. And uh, I mean, the, the assembled... Uh, reporters uh, 
just gave out any number of giggles, laughs, and sarcastic comments. It was just, uh, it was perfectly ridiculous to suggest that, uh, that that tree stump would have been the basis for the gargoyle photograph. Well, there was an intervening time span of 12 years between 1975 and 1987, so. Yeah, in, in, in any case. Yeah. But, but um, uh, you had mentioned um, Frank Searle, and I think it was in, it must have been in 1973 uh, when I was, um, I had a year on sabbatical in Southampton and took a trip up to Loch Ness. And um, at the tourist bureau in Inverness, uh, they had this uh, photograph uh, of uh, supposedly Nessie. And I asked uh, where on earth they had got this from. And they told me that there was this fellow living uh, at the lock side who had taken it and who had taken lots of other pictures. And so um, we drove to the lock and um, found Searle there. Uh, he had a, a big tent with uh, a large number of photographs displayed and um, I wanted to take photographs of all those photographs and he didn't want me to do that uh, and uh, couldn't give me a terribly clear uh, or reasonable explanation why not. Wow. But, well, I don't, uh, I don't know if you've seen the expose documentary that was made about 15 years ago, but they pretty much well cooked his goose. Yes. In that documentary. Well, uh, I have to admit that on that occasion, and I think partly because the Tourist Bureau had sort of given him a, a recommendation. I, I took him as uh, as being genuine. Uh, but uh, looking back at some of those photographs now, it, I mean, it's obvious that, uh, that they were not genuine because there are uh, sets of what are said to be sequences of photographs. Uh, there's one sequence where uh, it's like a, uh, a humped body with a long neck and a head with an open mouth. And, and during the supposed sequence of uh, photographs, uh, the mouth stays open at exactly the same angle. And yeah, the only thing that changes are the humps near the back. Right. Think. Yes. And uh, then later at some stage, I found uh, there was a postcard of 
of yep. some prehistoric animal that from which he had just taken the same shapes. Yep, Brontosaurus. Yeah. He but, also uh, took an alleged UFO photograph as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So his luck was just a little too much, you know? Yeah. But uh, it was on that same visit that I met Tim Dinsdale because it happened that uh, that Tim apparently had also um, visited uh, Searle at that time. And I, uh, uh, so I met, uh, I met Tim on that occasion, and because it was at the same uh, location as Searle's place, I asked Tim what he thought of uh, Searle's photographs, and um, Tim was very hedgy about it. Uh, And uh, as I remember, uh, he said, they're very important photographs, which doesn't endorse them as genuine. Kind of ambiguous. Right. Yeah. And, uh, of course, I mean, what, what else could he say to someone he had just met for the first time? Yeah. Um, So... Did you ever have any contact with Dick Rayner or Tony Harmsworth? Uh, I have with both of them. And um, uh, I, I've uh, talked uh, quite a bit with, uh, with Dick Rayner. And uh, I respect what he's trying to do. Uh, you know, he's... Uh, uh, he set up underwater infrared uh, camera equipment in a number of places, hoping to get a uh, some useful uh, images at some time or another. But uh, I mean, this this was uh, certainly fifteen or twenty years ago, and. Uh, so I assume that he has not gotten had any success with that at all. I'm sure we would have heard about it. I know Dick, and I talked to him fairly regularly, so I'm sure if anything had to come up, he would have told me about it. Yeah, so you are in touch with him still? Yes, yes. And um, <clears throat> I was talking with Tony Harmsworth, and then he kind of, had a falling out with me over the flipper photos. Yeah. Well, um, I met Harmsworth in 1983, I believe it was, that uh, he had uh, fairly recently uh, set up an exhibition in the Loch Ness Hotel. And I thought that that was a really excellent exhibition. Uh, he had a uh, uh, a little panoramic, three-dimensional panoramic uh, model of the lock and uh, uh, information about uh, various locations there. 
And um, I thought uh, that he was a pretty pro-Nessi and uh, well-informed individual at that time. I believe by profession, Tony was a librarian. And uh, he also had uh, set up uh, an interesting historical exhibition down in uh, Fort Augustus at the Abbey in Fort Augustus. Uh, it was not not uh, not a Nessie exhibition, I believe, but uh, 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 history of the area. Well, a lot of this book, a lot of this book, is not about Nessie. It's about the history of the region. Right. And, I, and I, I think from reading his book that he was friends with a lot of the monks at the uh-huh. Abbey. Yeah, so well, I, think the, I think the monastery's been closed for a long time now, maybe 25 years. Yes. And, something and, like that. Well, it's open for tourists now. It's a tourist resort. They rent out uh, uh, accommodations in the abbey. Apparently, a lot of the monks had sightings of Nessie. Yes, and um, uh, I forget the names now, but um, uh, one of them even wrote a little pamphlet about it. But at any rate, I thought that uh, Tony Harmsworth uh, was, I don't know, Subducted by Adrian Shine. Perhaps. Adrian got himself somehow uh, to take over the, uh, the exhibition in the Loch Ness Hotel that certainly Tony had started. Yeah. There was but, a guy involved in that named Ronnie Bremner, too. Yes. Subsequently died. Yeah, well, Bremner was, I think, the owner of the hotel. And um, I don't know what sort of arrangement Tony Harmsworth had made with him in, in terms of ownership of the exhibition or getting the benefit of, uh, uh, of proceeds from it. Uh, but in my opinion... Uh, Shine sort of replaced Harmsworth. And uh, uh, a number of years ago, uh, Shine and Harmsworth um, created uh, a board game called Loch Ness Hunt. Yes, um, Harmsworth talks about that in his book. Yeah. Now, I think Tony thought he was going to make a fortune out of that and uh, uh, maybe gave up any uh, claims that he had to the exhibition. But the exhibition under Shine became 
a very anti-Nessie exhibition. Yes. Um, you've and, written several. Um, oh, go ahead. And Tony Harmsworth then later uh, set up a, a guiding, a tourist guide service. And he would uh, take busloads of tourists around the lock. And uh, I believe did a really good job at that. Yes. Well, now, I know you've written several critiques or rebuttals of various things that have been written over the years. One in particular, you wrote a critique of Loxton and Prothero's Abominable Science chapter on Nessie. Yeah, right. Would you like to talk about that? Well, it's just a dreadful thing. It's not worth talking about. It's There are too many uh, people who are confirmed supporters of mainstream science and uh, they seem to take it as part of their obligation to debunk things like Loch Ness Monsters and they just don't do a very good job at it because they don't know what they're talking about a lot of the time and I believe that uh, uh, these people are amongst the ones who uh, accept that the flipper photographs are retouched and faked. Uh, and that is, uh, it's just simply nonsense. You also wrote a rebuttal to Gareth Williams' Monstrous Commotion book. Yes, that was a terribly... Uh, disappointing book because um, uh, it's all about the personalities and not, it's not really about Nessies and uh, um, again I don't uh, remember the details of um, of what I criticized but I think that was the main thing and it was so disappointing because uh, uh, he had uh, he started off by saying that he'd been interested in Nessie since childhood and had uh, always wanted to write something like this. And uh, it turned out to be uh, not very complimentary about uh, people, including Tim Dinsdale. Well, one uh, of the impressions I got from the book, from reading it, was that I think he added his own spin to certain things that he found out about. He read too much into it and put his own spin on it after the fact. Right. And I he, did, he did uncover some very interesting background information from the writings of Peter Scott from Letters. Right. So valuable for that reason alone. Yeah. A lot of that information had never come to light before. Yeah. You but know, he one did of kind of characterize Tim Dinsdale as trying to be an opportunist looking for attention. And I never got that impression from everything mm. else I've read about Dinsdale. 
No, I I mean, I got to know Tim very well indeed, and he was absolutely genuine. Uh, I will I will concede that he was naive about a number of things, yeah. but uh, but he was completely honest, and uh, uh, the. <laughs> One of the things I have against Adrian Shine is that uh, in 1984 or 85, when I was talking with Shine, uh, Adrian said to me, you know, uh, I've heard rumors that Tim no longer believes in his own film. And that was utter nonsense and Shine was simply fishing. And uh, I had the chance to see Tim uh, before I went back to the States on that occasion. And uh, I've never seen Tim so angry about anything. He said that he had heard uh, about these uh, allegations Shine was making from quite a number of other people as well. And uh, and he was absolutely furious about it. Yeah. But uh, uh, Steve Feltham is something, uh, isn't a person I've talked with some too, and I think he's completely honest and genuine. Yes, I've had some contact with Steve, not much, a little bit. We we talk once in a blue moon. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I believe he's sincere myself. But uh, we got to know uh, a number of people because Barbara and I spent a couple of weeks every summer for about 20 years in a chalet overlooking Urquhart Bay and we got to know the people who owned the chalet, um, Billy Ross and his wife. And um, one time, Billy Ross told me that his mother had once seen Nessie in Urquhart Bay from their kitchen window. Uh, they had a cottage above that chalet. Uh, and like a good skeptical Scot, uh, Billy Ross said to me, uh, well, my mother said she saw it, but I wouldn't believe it unless I see it myself. Huh. Um, did you ever meet the Careys? Meet who? The Careys, Winifred Carey and her husband, Basil Oh, uh, not her husband, uh, but I did meet uh, Winifred, Freddie. And yeah. uh, uh, in fact, uh, during the first few years when Barbara and I were going over there, I would go, I would walk over to Freddie's cottage and uh, spend some time chatting with her. And uh, uh, petting the cat that she had. 
<laughs> and I, I met her daughter also, who is a, um, um, an artist. She does portraits of animals for people. Uh, of horses and dogs. But uh, uh, Freddie didn't have, I didn't learn anything from her that I had not read about already, uh, like that uh, uh, she and her husband and Bob Rines had once actually uh, watched uh, Nessie watched a Nessie moving around uh, just under the surface in Orchid Bay. Yeah, did you did you ever meet Alex Campbell? No, I didn't. The um, uh, when I first uh, decided to write a book about uh, the Nessie thing, I. I sent a uh, a letter to the Inverness Courier asking people who had any useful information that they'd be uh, willing to share with me to to get in touch with me. And I had a remarkable response from uh, Dick McIntosh. I've heard uh, the name. Dick Macintosh. Uh, it's uh, Dick was not was a nickname, um, and his actual name has slipped my mind for the moment. But he was a uh, long time, very well known lawyer actually in Inverness, and uh, he wrote several books. He had been a uh, a member of the Navy in the Second World War, and he wrote one book about that. And he wrote a book about becoming a lawyer uh, and uh, a book about growing up in Inverness and uh, preparing to write about that book. He made himself an index of the Inverness Courier, if you can believe that. Ah. And in response to my query, he sent me a copy of that index so that I was able very quickly to locate uh, anything in the Inverness Courier about the Loch Ness Monster. That must have come in handy. Yeah, it sure did. And beyond that, when... Uh, when Barbara and I started to uh, spend holidays over there, we got to know Dick and his uh, second wife, Sybil. We got to know them very well indeed and spent lots of time with them whenever we were over there. Uh, now, Dick had known that my interest had started through Nessie, but... It was several years after uh, he and his wife and Barbara and I had been getting together quite often. It was years before, on one occasion, 
he mentioned that he himself had seen Nessie. And in a rather remarkable way, he said he'd, he was a lifelong fisherman on Loch Ness. And he said that uh, sometime around the 1940s, he had been out in a rowboat fishing with an 11-year-old nephew. And that all of a sudden, this huge gray mass emerged from the water not very far from their boat and that all he could think of was to get his nephew back to safety as quickly as possible and he rode for the shore as fast as he could not trying to uh, see any more detail about this huge gray mass but you know, to me, <laughs> that's a terribly convincing little anecdote. He is a lifelong fisherman on the loch who sees something he's never seen before, and it's big and it's animate. Yeah. Yeah, that reminds me of some people that I know at Lake Champlain. They run a boathouse that was started by their father in 1928. They've been down there all their life, seen every fish you could possibly see pulled out of Lake Champlain. In 1986, they had three sightings all within a, a period of three weeks. Never seen anything before that, never seen anything after that. But what they saw was your typical long-necked plesiosaur with the neck and head standing up out of the water. They saw it three times, that one short period, and have never seen anything since. But they spent their whole life down there. Um, the brother recently died, but the sister is 92 years old. And I spoke to her probably... Two months ago, I've, so I've known these people for at least a quarter of a century. And that's kind of the, the same kind of situation, you know. They've been down there all their life and only saw these three sightings in 1986 and nothing since and nothing before. Now, Champlain is not that deep, is it? It's about 400 feet deep maximum. Mm -hmm. But it's 120 miles long. Yeah. So it's about five times longer than Loch Ness, but half as deep. So whatever that works out to. Yeah. There's a huge chunk of the middle, probably about 60 miles, that is regularly over 250 feet deep. So that's probably where these things are hiding, is in that deep stretch. <laughs> Has there been any really systematic sonar searching there? There was by a Japanese documentary crew in 1993. And then there's been isolated, you know, work. I, work I've done myself back in 2017. We got a bizarre plesiosaur-shaped sonar contact that we estimate was about 13 feet long. 
for about two minutes and then it disappeared off the sonar. This was on a side scan unit. Hmm. So yeah, occasionally we get <clears throat> we get sonar stuff there too. And uh, I remember now, some years ago, uh, I had uh, heard of or had some contact with someone who had picked up uh, hydrophone. Yes, I hydrophone I some sound. Yes, uh, Elizabeth Von Muggenthaler. Oh, yeah, right. Bioacoustician out of North Carolina. Yes, I actually worked with her back in 2008-2009, and we were able to publish an um, abstract in the Acoustical Society of America journal. Uh-huh. I can send you that. Please. Yeah, we've meant to do uh, follow-up work, but Dr. Von Muggenthaler has disappeared. I, I, I don't know what's going on with her. So. But yeah, mm. I, I'll send you that in an email. Good. So what were your thoughts on the environmental DNA survey that just happened at Loch Ness? Well, I, um, I had... Um, I, I emailed um, um, the New Zealand fellow who did the thing and um, mentioned to him uh, uh, my suggestion that there might have been a, uh, that there might be some sort of a genetic uh, connection with turtles. Uh, and uh, I think the... Uh, the important thing to me, I guess, is to uh, have learned that about one quarter of their samples are unidentified. Yeah. Well, I think their explanation, or at least the explanation I've heard, is that some of the DNA was so fragmented or deteriorated or contaminated that it was impossible to get a complete DNA strand from those. Yeah. But, you know, there's also the alternative that they may be dealing with something they don't recognize. So. Yeah, and I I don't understand the technicalities of that well enough. Um, well, one thing that critics have pointed out, which is very valid, is they got no otter DNA or no seal DNA. And we know that seals occasionally get into Loch Ness. Right. And otters are in there all the time. Yeah. So that, that right there tells you it's possible something could have got through their net. Perhaps something that stays down in the really deep water. I don't know. Yeah. And, but uh, what I also don't understand is uh, uh, what length of uh, DNA they need in order to make an identification with uh, DNA that uh, of known creatures? Have you heard of this thing called the Gen Bank? No. It's a database of complete DNA sequences of various marine animals that they put together. Uh, up at this university in Canada. Uh-huh. And it's computerized, and if you get a DNA sequence of something, a carcass that's washed up, 
you don't know what it is. You can punch in the complete DNA sequence on a computer, and they run it against the database of marine animals they've already got, and can get you an answer back sometimes in as quickly as a few seconds. Well. Yeah, so I believe that they run the DNA sequences that they got from Loch Ness against the GenBank and some probably some other similar databases that are out there. Uh-huh. So how that works is they get a water sample and there are DNA fragments in the water sample. They have to chemically separate the DNA fragments from the water and then through various chemical tests and processes, they can isolate the DNA fragments. And there's a way to grow a complete DNA sequence from the fragments that are that pulled out of the water, which is a, a replication of the complete DNA sequence of these fragments they get. Then they run those complete sequences through a computer and match it against samples of known animals. Uh, that's how it works. Well, uh, I mean, I, I know that they have to... Um... Uh, amplify the amounts because they may yeah. be very small amounts of DNA and this exactly. is the there are chemical processes they can use to, well, it, to replicate yeah. the original DNA sequence well it's it, this is the PCR technique that mm-hmm. that's used for everything to do with DNA and RNA yes. now yes. but you know in order to do that uh, yeah, you already have to know something about the uh, uh, about the the structure of that DNA. Yeah, you've got to have the full sequence too. Yeah, and and I mean you you can't get a longer sequence than the original bit of DNA that you got out of the water. Well, you know, one thing that was interesting to me is that ahead of the survey, they were trying to figure out a way to replicate hypothetical plesiosaur DNA. Yeah. What they did is they looked at the DNA sequences of crocodilians and the DNA sequences of birds and tried to come up with a hypothetical intermediate sequence that if they got anything reptilian that might be something along the lines of a plesiosaur, they could compare it with that. But, they, you know, of course, they have no real plesiosaur DNA to work with. Yeah, no, no. They're, they're, well, they were working very much in the dark. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> I do know that if they tried the same thing at Lake Champlain, they would get a lot of reptilian DNA because there are several species of freshwater turtle and aquatic snakes, uh-huh. lizards, and, and even uh, in amphibians. They did get some amphibian DNA from Loch Ness, but I believe they were all known species of newts uh-huh. and toads. Yeah. I'm sure you're aware that that Robert Ryan's back in 2005 filmed a toad at the bottom of Loch Ness. 
I had forgotten that, but you're right. Yeah, he did. So, what what are your um, final thoughts on all this? Well, I'm still very frustrated because I'd like to know what Nessies really are. <laughs> well, me too. And uh, <clears throat> I don't see us getting any closer to finding out because we don't have a substitute for Bob Ryan's uh, who's going to be pushing uh, every conceivable approach to trying to find out. Well, you have to look at his legacy. He spent 38 years looking for Nassi from 1970 to 2008. That's very impressive. It and sure I'm is. Sure, I'm sure if he didn't seriously believe there was something there, he wouldn't have spent that much time and effort looking for it. Sure. No, he he was certainly convinced, and and uh, in part because he had uh, had uh, a sighting himself. Yeah. At least one. He may have had more, actually. You know, I don't have a problem with people suggesting skeptical explanations for the various pieces of evidence. What I have a problem with is when they insist that their interpretation is the only possible one that you can come to. Yeah, well... And that's a problem, too, with true believers who aren't <laughs> critical. It's, you know, it's a two sides of the same coin. Yes. I, yeah. I mean, Scott, over the years, I have gotten terribly, terribly, terribly tired of the true believers on both sides. Yeah. And, uh, you know, more and more, it's frustrating that there are so few people or organizations that are really genuinely trying to follow the actual evidence. I mean, it's it's terribly difficult to get really reliable facts about all sorts of things, and uh, when you're when you're dealing with uh, topics that are not in the mainstream, <clears throat> and where it's very hard to get any sort of supporting resources to do the work, I mean, it it becomes just uh, uh, it's a mess. Yes. What, let's talk about the demarcation problem, about, you know, where is the boundary between science, fringe science, and pseudoscience? That's very problematic, as far as I can understand. Well, I mean, I've written books about that, and... Uh, uh, I, I mean, one of the first things that I learned when I got into this uh, science studies field is that uh, there is no criterion. And um, to start with, uh, how are you going to define science? You know, if you define it as knowledge based on evidence... 
then you have to admit that a lot of what is called science nowadays uh, is improperly called science because it's not really based on sound evidence. Uh, another problem is that uh, uh, when people regard science as the reliable authority on almost every topic what this supposedly reliable authority says changes over time yeah so yeah. at what at what stage is it uh, is it really uh, to be taken as uh, absolute truth well at no stage actually <laughs> Yeah, I see what you're saying. So, uh, uh, um, I I should send you an article I just got published uh, about how science needs fact-checking. And, uh, you know, the Loch Ness Monster got me interested in... in uh, well, fact-checking is the referee process, isn't it? Well, it's su supposedly so, but where are the facts against which to check something? Uh, uh, global warming is one of the topics uh, that I find frustrating because the whole world seems to take it as uh, so-called settled science Yeah, that I carbon dioxide causes global warming and climate change. If you go into the literature... I wanted to ask you about. You, you did? Yeah. I wanted to ask you about your friend Dewey McLean, the paleontologist. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dewey was a uh, on the geology faculty here who... Uh, uh, denied that uh, the asteroid extinction hypothesis uh, about the dinosaurs. And uh, it's beginning to look more and more like Dewey and his other paleontologists and geologists were right that uh, the dinosaurs were not extinguished by an impact uh, from space of a comet or an asteroid uh, because the uh, uh, the extinction had sort of begun already before that uh, event and continued after the event it was the extinction was not a sudden thing well, I know for a fact that there is a controversial hadrosaur bone from New Mexico that may be 100,000 years after the asteroid impact. Right. It's carbon dated, so yeah, I mean, controversy out there. I mean, it's terribly difficult to get data for very short periods of time, for geologically short periods of time from yes. the fossil record. But uh, there have been uh, uh, publications more recently uh, about people who 
have uh, found evidence against the asteroid hypothesis. But, uh, you know, in terms of fact-checking science, if you go into the geological literature and look for data on temperature and carbon dioxide over the life of the Earth, it turns out that there's no correlation between temperature and carbon dioxide. And where there is some sort of a correlation, it's along the lines that uh, carbon dioxide increases in the atmosphere follow increases in temperature rather than the other way around. On top of that, in the last million years, there have been seven or eight major ice ages and the temperature differential between the maximum of the ice age and the maximum of the intervening uh, warmer period, the temperature differential is between 5 and 6 degrees centigrade. And yet the so-called experts on climate change and global warming are telling us to do something to prevent a increase in temperature of more than two degrees. It's yeah. just absolutely nonsensical. And all of the official pronouncements are based on computer models. Yeah. Well, I know, looking at the geology around Lake Champlain, I know that 20 million years ago, Vermont had a climate like Florida does now. Yeah. I can't believe that. It was subtropical in Vermont 20 million right. years ago. Yeah. So they were probably crocodiles. I mean, they find crocodilian fossils out in Colorado and Wyoming. Yeah. From periods when it was warmer than it is today. So. Yeah. Yeah, my, my, ultimately, the thing is, there's a heck of a lot we don't yet know. Oh, absolutely. You got to think, geology as we know it has only existed for about 200 years. Yeah. And it's hard to believe that we've figured out 600 million years of geologic history of multicellular life in only 200 years. Yeah, we've learned a lot, and there's a lot still that we don't, just don't know. Yeah. Well, I remember in your Nessie book, you talked about discoveries that were premature, that discoveries were made that were significant, but the context in which to understand them did not exist yet when they were right. discovered. Yeah. And you suggested that possibly Nessie might fall into that category as well. Well, she certainly does. Yeah. Well, we've gone for another hour. Um, is there anything else you want to throw in there? I don't think so at the moment. The time has gone very quickly. Yeah, it usually does. 
Yeah. But I think we got in some really good talking points. Definitely. And I, I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you for coming on. I really enjoyed it too, Scott, and uh, and uh, look forward to to getting your email. You have a good night. You too, and thanks again. Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.